Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Juno Kim is a man with a deep, deep soul. He became a household name among the food and creative worlds after launching Juno Kim Catering, marking his successful run in the culinary space, despite any formal training. The son of immigrants from South Korea, he spent much of his childhood moving from city to city, school to school. After graduating from university, he found himself becoming a chef, reimagining people's sensory experiences with food, with his intricate seasonal dishes to great acclaim before a major burnout in 2017 led to a period of self-exploration. In this layered conversation, we dive into his childhood, his reintroduction to meditation, a passion for matcha and the ceremony of tea, what it means to thrive in the world, and more. Please enjoy this intimate and personal conversation with a very perceptive Juno Kim. Juno Kim, welcome to The Craft. Thank you, May. Thanks for... Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your your time and being here and your presence. I'm very, very excited to explore a lot of different topics with you. Yeah, I'm honored and grateful, grateful to be here. Uh, I always love to try to connect the dots on how we met. We were having a little pre-chat and I was saying to you initially, I thought it was during your catering days, um, maybe at an event that I was attending, but it actually was way before that in 2011, 12, when you were, you were a buyer, no, at Chrome Yellow? Yeah, I was a buyer for a boutique in Gastown called Chrome Yellow. Yeah. Feels like, feels like two, three lifetimes ago now, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And the reason why I, I do when I realized, oh my gosh, it was it was further back than I than I thought. Um, I had mentioned to you is because I I really remembered your your presence mm-hmm. and <laughs> the way you carried yourself. So, and so it was so nice to continue running into you over the years at different events as you moved more into your culinary journey, which we can dive into. But do you also remember we had a meeting when I was still at Rennie? Mm. And you were um, with Here There, I believe it was called, right? Yeah, Here There, Yeah, with Lizzie and Ken. Yeah. And we were chatting about perhaps doing an art and food experience at the Rennie Museum, which never ended up coming into fruition. But um, it was, I remember thinking that it could have been such a great activation and specifically because of the way that you approach these these experiences or what the way you did you know approach these experiences with, with food um which we'll explore later but i want to take it way back mm. into your childhood Ooh, yeah okay. <laughs> um i want to know about your mom dad any siblings you're the son of immigrant parents from yeah. south korea mm-hmm. yeah i've got quite a um maybe unique, unique circumstance of how I ended up where I am. Um, so not many people know this, my close friends do, um, but I actually have two older brothers. And so my parents decided to move, like around the time I was born, they wanted to immigrate to Canada. Um, and so that happened 
that ended up happening when I was about four years old. And I remember when we were moving, my brothers didn't want to move because they were already in school. They were older than me. And, um, and so they were already in school and they didn't want to leave their friends. And I totally understand that. Um, and so my parents made a really difficult choice um, that they would come with me and my oldest brother and my middle brother stayed behind with my grandma. And I think the hope was that he would eventually come around to coming to Canada. Um, but it never happened. And then my oldest actually ended up moving back to Korea um, after some years. And so, yeah, I was four when we moved from Korea. Um, and then we went to Montreal because that's where the immigration was accepted to. Mm. Um, I don't think, I think back then and maybe still, um, you didn't really get to pick where you went. So Montreal was the cards we were dealt. And so we moved there. My, my dad uh, ended up pursuing his passion project of opening an antique store. And so he opened an antique store on Sherbrooke Street, which is like maybe like Hastings is our, our comparable, where it's just like super long, mm. connects many different neighborhoods. And um, yeah, it. Uh, I, think, I think we weren't doing too well, but we weren't doing too bad either. But I think the winters were getting to my parents. Mm -hmm. And so once they were allowed to move, um, we picked Vancouver, well, we. They picked Vancouver. I just came along for the ride. <laughs> right, yeah. And so moved to Port Moody, grew up there, um, went to French immersion. French was actually my second language that I learned. So mm. it went Korean, French, English. Wow. Yeah. And then English is the only one I'm fully fluent in now, mm. although I can communicate with the other two. Wow. Yeah. And so spent some time in Montreal, moved here, went to French immersion. Um, yeah. And then went to English school in grade seven, then moved to UBC mm. when, when uh, I graduated. And so I think a lot of my childhood was marked by um, lots of moving around. And so one thing I've noticed in my, you know, returning back to exploring my childhood these days is that I never had like a core group of friends ever because by the time I became friends with people, I would move. Mm. And even when I moved to Port Moody, um, I went to uh, French immersion school in Port Moody and then I went to one in Coquitlam and then I went to a middle school in, in Port Moody mm -hmm. so by the time I hit high school the longest I've ever spent in one school was two and a half years yeah, yeah. and back then we didn't have social media and I was like I was super young so I didn't get people's contacts and so just never kept in touch mm. um, with a lot of my friends that I had back then right mm -hmm. and how did I'm I'm curious, you know, with all the moving, how how did you feel as a child? Did it make you feel um, ungrounded, or yeah, what was that feeling mm -hmm. that you had with the moving? Yeah, I mean, with my with my culture uh, that I came from, I think emotional intelligence isn't, or at least it just wasn't part of my life back then. So it was hard for me to understand. I think the internal struggles, internal sensations, feelings that I had back then. Um, I think I was, for the most part, a happy kid, but I know there was a lot of moments of feeling, um, maybe feeling a lack of love and belonging, as well as um, feeling different all the time. Like, mm. I always felt different from everyone else, um, mm. not in like a, not in a positive way back then. Right. Um, yeah. I know that, um, kind of connecting this to, 
you know, the ways that I know you now. Mm-hmm. And community is so important to you mm-hmm. now as an adult. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, that, um, that's, that sense that you have of building community is because, you know, of how you felt back then and not having a close group of friends. Yeah, I think so. And it, I think it also speaks to like when I'm most um, centered around community, I find it tends to be when I'm in a good place mentally. Mm. And my mental health has always been rocky throughout my whole life. Mm. Um, there's, you know, times when it's really great and times when it's really bad. And for most of the times that it was good, looking back, it wasn't so much like an internal shift that happened it's just my external environment was really good at the time like I was excelling in school or something or Mm. um, I had lots of friends at that time in my life and so those were the moments that I felt really really um, community oriented I think I think when I'm thriving that's when I'm very community oriented Mm. yeah even in my catering career I look back and you know there were definitely some dark moments in it and during those times I'd get very insular yeah. Very to myself, disconnect from the world. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you could ask a mutual friend of ours, David Walmsley, there would be days where I'd just disappear. Like he would text me and I just wouldn't respond for mm. multiple days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that community, um, I think it's just so core to my uh, my being, but I can only access that when I'm feeling good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The word you used was thrive when you feel like you're thriving. Yeah, yeah. And what were mom and dad like? Oh, my dad was very, hmm, what's the word I want to use? Passionate. <laughs> he was, uh, he, he grew up, um, you know, he was, I think, born just coming out of the Korean War. And so I think he had a lot of, um, a lot of things that he endured and and so um you know emotionally i think he was very loving um but at times he could be very strict and very um let's say stern mm. <laughs> i mean i think a lot of uh i think a lot of asian um people who grew up with asian parents i think a lot of them can relate to to that um and so there would be times where my dad would be pretty um, intense, mm. but I know that it comes from a place of love. And so, yeah, and then my mom is so, so loving. Um, I remember actually thinking back, my mom, I noticed periods where my mom had a lot of anxiety. Mm. And I think that's something that um, connects us on a, you know, on the, on that side of the mental health spectrum. Um, and yeah, I think they were, they were very, they were very loving in terms of work. My dad did the antique store. Um, he was super into it. And then my mom, uh, was stay at home mom for most of my life. And then at one point my dad decided to close down the shop. And so my mom started working then. And so she became an assistant for physician Mm. and, um, yeah. Mm. The antique store, it, you said it was your dad's dream to, to open one. Yeah. Do you think that's um, maybe where some of your like love for design came from? Did he have that <laughs> same, did he have that same love or was it, com- no? <laughs> no, um, I mean, different. Like he was really into 
um, what era would that be? Like, you know, post-Renaissance, um, early 1900s, like that's what he was super mm. into, um, those, those eras. Um, and I remember growing up, like I spent a lot of time in that antique store, right? Because, uh, you know, I'd come home from school and I would just go straight to the store and be there until the store closed. And I hated antiques because <laughs> of it. Like I was a little kid and I was like, I hate antiques so much. <laughs> like they smell, they're like, they're like old. And like, to me, they weren't nice and they weren't cool and new and hip. And so, yeah, I think for a long time <laughs> in my life, I absolutely hated the idea of antiques <laughs> until uh, until my adult life when I could come back around to it and yeah, appreciate it. And appreciate it. For, it. Yeah, yeah. And my parents would a watch Antique Roadshow on the weekends. No and way. I, I'd hate it so much. <laughs> You're like, I just want some cartoons, yeah. please. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> And was food a huge part of growing up for you? Hmm, yeah, yeah. Food's been an interesting exploration looking back because my mom makes incredible Korean food from scratch. Everything's from scratch. And and um, there was so much love put into it. But, you know, as a kid, and this goes back to what I mentioned about feeling different all the time, like I didn't want to bring the kimchi to school and stink up the classroom during, mm -hmm. lunch, or during lunch hour. I didn't want to... You know, other kids were like, oh, I'm having like hot dogs or pizza. And I'm like, oh, I'd love to have hot dogs or pizza for for dinner, mm -hmm. which never happened. And and so I think um, I think when I was young, there wasn't as much appreciation. But looking back, I just have so much warmth and fondness around how incredible my mom's food was. And now that I've like gone to this point in my life, I'm starting to explore funny I didn't do it while I was catering much but now I'm starting to explore these like recipes that my mom would make and mm. start to see yeah it's just beautiful like how how it connects to like not only a particular culture but also that history of that culture and then it connects me to my mom and and everything that represents and so right and then combining that with now and so like the local ingredients the the seasonality of um of the style of cooking that I really enjoy and then fusing that together with uh, my mom's uh, my mom's love that she's kind of passed down to me mm. and so that's been a really fruitful exploration yeah well thank you for the love that you brought me mm. for everyone listening <laughs> he brought me some kimchi that he made <laughs> yeah. so thank you or it's my pleasure um yeah let's let's explore this this next chapter of your life as as a uh, as a caterer, we had mentioned that you were working in luxury retail and fashion for an independent boutique, and then you left it to pursue food. Can you tell me about the moment where food became so integral to this this next chapter of your life? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people assume that I started cooking at a really young age. And while I remember moments of cooking landing on me a certain way, like I remember grade eight uh, home ec class, we would learn um some cooking recipes and I remember wanting to share that with my parents like let me cook you breakfast and then um and that being some of the like joyous moments um me being able to cook for my parents in that way when I was you know 14 13 mm -hmm. and then um oh sorry I dropped I dropped the question that's okay what was the question the the question was just about the the moment oh that yeah yeah, Food and so important. it kind of was like this gradual thing that happened. I was going to university um, 
at the time. And I went in for science. That's what my parents wanted me to go into. Uh, they wanted me to be a, a doctor. Of course. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And then um, when that didn't work out, I, I got really into psychology and sociology and economics. And so that's why I switched to. And psychology started to shift my, I guess, my values and my and the things that I wanted to prioritize in my life. Mm. And materialism was something that I held a lot of in my early 20s and um, my late teenage years as well. And I think studying psychology, I started getting more interested in what what is needed to live a fulfilling life and what does happiness mean and, and how do you achieve happiness? I, it's a little misguided about mm-hmm. happiness back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that exploration led me to um, prioritize experiences over material goods. And so that started this weird shift in my work where I just really wasn't into it. I just felt like it wasn't serving any purpose for society and any big positive purpose. And, um, and for some reason at that time, that was really important to me. It still is. And, um, and so that exploration is kind of what shifted me to learn about cooking. And then I started nerding out about cooking so much. And so in about two years time, I think I was, you know, getting off work, studying on my own time, how to cook for like two hours a day, practicing um, Mm. all the time. And, and so that shift started happening around then around 2012. And I think that's what pushed me to get into catering, which kind of happened by accident. Um, Luis Valdezin, who Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, he does all my visual story- storytelling for this podcast. Amazing, yeah. So Luis is a is a good friend of mine, and um, yeah, I have so much love and gratitude to share uh, mm-hmm. about Luis. And so Luis um, reached out and was like, "Hey, I have a group of creatives, and I know you, like catering is not something you do, but would you be interested in in cooking for them?" Um, at the time, my Instagram was kind of gaining momentum with what I was sharing with just like my adventures of cooking. And so that's actually how I got into catering was literally that moment where yeah. Luis just asked me to cater something. And I said, mm. yes. And then and then that was it. Like, yeah. It and, was magic. And then and you went on to do some amazing things, multisensory experiences, some brands people might recognize Lululemon Lab, 33 Acres Brewing. You were there for, for a while, weren't you? Yeah. 33 and, Acres um, was one of the big reasons why my catering blew up when it did. Um, at the time, I had a lot of hype on uh, my Instagram feed, and um, I remember doing Hawker's Market, and 33 Acres was there. They were the only um, like beer line, mm-hmm. and then there were all these food vendors, and 33 Acres and and our stall, which uh, shout out to Doug Steven back then, uh, he helped me a ton, and um, and so it was like a merchant's. Uh, which was his re- restaurant before DL. Uh, it was like a Merchants and Juno uh, collab. And then our lineup was the longest by far wow. um, out of all the food vendors. And the only one that was longer than us was 33 Acres. And Dustin was there. Yeah. Uh, Dustin was the GM back then. And so Dustin reached out and um, they wanted to do a Monday night dinner series to kind of boost traffic on Mondays. Mm. And so I took that on. I think we did it for, oh, my memory's failing me. I think it's it was either a year and a half or two and a half years I think it was a year and a half yeah yeah it's yeah, a long um, time to do series like a regular series yeah it was a super long time and I remember the 
um, they did such a great job promoting it. And so there was like lineups um, for like the first couple months and mm-hmm. that kind of just you know solidified my entry into the food world yeah which is incredible because you don't have any formal training no no it was it all curiosity and and learning and there's probably there is a natural ability in you do you feel like or do you really feel like it was your curiosity plus learning no I think I think all of the above for yeah. sure I think mm-hmm. a little bit of everything um, I'm trying to think of why cooking Um, landed on me the way it did Um, you know I'm not quite sure but I do know that my experience at the clothing boutique played a large role in in a lot of what I did Um, I think that role as a buyer gave me kind of the an appreciation for aesthetic and design and then I was able to um, transmute that into uh, how am I going to design this plate and so Cooking, obviously, priority is, you know, nourishment and, and the flavor. But there was something about the visual side of cooking that really got me going. And, mm. and that's something that stuck with me. Yeah, yeah I've read something in, in doing my, my research. Um, <laughs> I read something, I, I believe it was a Vancouver Magazine article. Um, and it said that you were shaping the visual language over food experiences. And oh, I thought wow. that was a... <laughs> It was such a wonderful way to describe your approach because, and also your nod for design, as you were talking about, because when I think of your dishes and the ones that I've had at various events, when I looked at the plating, when I looked at the textures, that the taste on my tongue, it was an experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and that, I think that played into my psychology education as well, too. Um, and I think there was a reason I got into psychology, and it was a curiosity towards the human mind. Mm. And... I think that that plays a big role in in my explorations currently. Um, But that psychology aspect really played into um, the empathy that enabled me to put myself in the shoes of the diner, especially because as opposed to many cooks, maybe most cooks even, um, I started as a diner and never thought about being in the kitchen. And so that, you know, starting as a diner, I can kind of center myself in that experience and then figure out what can I shift and manipulate with variables mm. to create, to, to kind of connect with that diner in a certain way right. um, that I want to. And so then it got into like, um, not just visual, not just um, the flavor, but thinking about the whole experience and all the other senses involved. Mm. Yeah, and I, I know that you um, put a lot of thought and planning into your your dishes and meals. Um, what does that creative process look like for you? And is it a, a process that you apply to all of the projects that you do? Hmm. I think most of the time it revolves around, it's centered around the seasons. And so I take a look at what's in season right now. And that was kind of like the guidance and the container that you create so that you can kind of play in that sandbox. And it's like, okay, like, let's say radish asparagus is in season right now. um, And I want to play with that. So like, that gives me kind of like a direction to go. And then I can tap into like what my current inspirations are, um, maybe certain flavors that I've really enjoyed recently. And so there's some sort, there's a bit of like recency bias to to my inspirations, um, things that kind of um, spark uh, either curiosity, wonder, or enjoyment in that in that moment of time, that kind of gets put into there. 
Um, but I look for as much um, guidance in the sense of like that container mm. um, as much as possible. And I think that can create um, interesting explorations. Mm-hmm. And then in 2017, you hit a bit of a wall. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Can you tell I, me about that that moment? For sure. And I think it was a culmination. Um, it was December 2017, and I just wrapped up my last gig of the year, which, you know, every year previous to that, that was like a joyous moment. I'd probably be out, you know, partying with my friends or, or at least just like enjoying myself at home. And I remember coming home that night and just feeling so depleted and empty and sitting down on that couch and feeling this darkness um and there was a moment of like I didn't know who I was anymore I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing in life um it was a real moment of like unrecognizability like I just couldn't recognize what what was me anymore and what was just patterns and so in that darkness, it felt, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty, um, pretty deep. And I think the depth of that suffering was what triggered this um, sustainable shift away from it. I knew in that moment that something had to change and it couldn't be what I did in the past, which was like all these health binges. I would go on these health binges for like a month to, to maybe like three months. And, and it's not like I didn't know what was good for me. It was just, I was, it felt like I was unable to do the thing I know that I needed to do in that moment to take care of myself. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, yeah, that was December, 2017. And, um, how long did that, that last for you? Um, I remember I had the, um, I had the ability to take a few months off work, uh, for the most part. Um, and so I took a bit of a sabbatical, uh, beginning of 2018 and I didn't even do, like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything productive, positive. It wasn't like, I was like motivated to create change. I was just like done. Like my, my, um, stress, my feelings of stress were intense, even when like two months into it and I'm still feeling super depleted and, and, um, my experience was really jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a word that really connects to that time. Um, and so, yeah, and that part kind of allowed me to get enough space to start to explore how do I get out of this and what am I going to do and where do I go? And so <clears throat> I think May of 2020 is when, or sorry, May of 2018 is when I started to go to the, the gym. That was like the first thing I did. And um, shout out to Brandon Grassuti, uh, the owner of Pigeon. He was one of my photography clients, my first photography client. Um, and photography was a way for me to get out of the kitchen. And so I remember um, Brandon just kind of kind of sensed I was not in a great place. And uh, he convinced me to go work out with him. And then that was kind of the start of, you know, doing some productive things, positive things that would help me feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, go you going to start like working out and going to the gym, it was a probably a really good way for you to feel more connected to your body. 
Yeah, I think the connection would come far later, but yeah. definitely at least like the surface layer connection of like, oh, my muscles are sore and like, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely was the, the impetus for mm -hmm. sure. And this began this this journey into mindfulness. Mm -hmm. A rediscovery more like um, I had started but the first time I ever meditated was when I was around eight years of age and I was in Taekwondo like most Korean most Korean boys um, back then did Taekwondo. And so I did, um, I learned basically like a box breathing meditation, just awareness of breath. And then I remember I carried that through um, a lot of my life, like maybe until university. And I remember around like grade 12 is maybe when I stopped uh, meditating. I wasn't like a daily, um, I, was, I didn't have a daily practice, but I would do it whenever I felt um, the need to be calm and then in high school I kind of lost that like mm -hmm. I just I, I just something I let go of and then when I started studying psychology again all of a sudden you start learning about mindfulness and meditation and the benefits of that and at the time I was also super into um, like uh, self-growth and self-development and so that was when I got my first tattoo ever of an Enzo, um, which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that was kind of my like commitment to myself that I'm not gonna drop meditation again. Mm. And, uh, and then when I started cooking, it was interesting. It was like when I found success for the first time in my life, it felt like to me that I could let go of all these things, like I was good now. Mm. not realizing that there's a process and a practice to everything mm -hmm. and so I let go of it and um, and especially that part of my life I think I needed it the most out of any part of my life I was working you know 80 hour weeks at times and and really um, really caught in that busyness trap and, and that type a personality and um, and I think a lot of that time um, I I I said to myself, I don't have time to go to the gym. I don't have time to go meditate because I'm working too much. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't think it was too much. I think I thought that, you know, that was me excelling and that that was, you know, um, something positive to be working those amounts. And um, I think it's something I wore as a badge of honor, not realizing the deep implications of having that kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. And with the meditation, did I think this may have been a conversation we had um, a while back, maybe at Courtney's birthday. Did you go to to take your meditation training or certification? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So um, just remember that in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I did meditation. I think when I got back into meditation, it was around. Yeah, it was about 2018. Um, oh, actually, before that, this is quite relevant to the question you asked. Um, in 2017, my my ex-girlfriend, um, well, girlfriend at the time, uh, convinced me to go to this meditation studio. And at that time, it, I wasn't really saying yes to uh, well-being opportunities like that. But there was something that called to me. And I think it was like, you know, I have a tattoo on my arm about meditation and I haven't meditated. And someone just asked me to go to a meditation studio, mm. Canada's first meditation studio I learned after. Mm. And so I went and there was um, there was a the teacher that was there. Her name is Hiroko Demichelis. And Hiroko was like, I could feel this like 
unconditional love and acceptance. And I just met her and I could feel this tenderness and softness. And at the time I didn't think much of it, but now I, I think back to that point and it was like a seed had been planted in me that has sprouted and continued to sprout to this day. And, um, and it's, and that place was called moment meditation, which, um, it was in the Dominion building, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and Anita Chung yes. and Hiroko. Um, it was their project. And, you know, I think it was a little early. Mm. Um, I think meditation still uh, wasn't as big as it is maybe today. Yeah. Um, and so I started to get back into meditation um, deeply. And I remember during that sabbatical I mentioned, I went to moment meditation multiple times. And those are some of the most, like, calm peaceful mm -hmm. um, moments during that time that i felt yeah and, and so and hero's incredible and oh, yeah, yeah. You, she she's she came to me how she came into my life was um a referral from some girlfriends who are seeing her as their therapist mm. so i have you know had a few with her and you are right she has this wonderful presence about her and warm and yeah. trustworthy yeah it's like this this like motherly energy of like no matter what you do i will still love you mm -hmm. like that's mm -hmm. the vibe she gives off yeah, and it's absolutely. like it just makes it's you a feel, warm hug yeah, all the time yeah and it and it allows people when they're around her to kind of lower the walls that they put up usually and mm -hmm. then that enables them to reconnect with themselves on a deeper level mm -hmm. and so it's quite yeah, she has quite a magical, magical yeah, touch. And does. so I remember, um, yeah, doing meditation um, at moment quite a bit. And then I started using some apps and doing some silent meditations. Um, and then uh, it was around. Yeah, I, I think what I noticed was mindfulness was having such a deep impact on me, um, like the retreats I went to um, inspired by like Yuval Noah Harari and Sam Harris and Jay Shetty and just hearing about their experiences on silent retreats and then that impact that it had on me I think one thing that I realized I needed to or that I wanted to do um, to to help myself thrive was be of service in a really authentic way and so uh, when I started thinking about it I started to think like okay what need is there that I can provide um, to be of service with that connects with me on such a deep level and that doesn't have anything monetary attached to it and so mindfulness was kind of that that thing for me and so I started designing this um, sensory experience that would help people connect to I guess the physical sensations of being in being in meditation um, which for a lot of people Originally, that's discomfort, but then when you get underneath that discomfort, there's a lot of just, it, it, it just genuinely feels good. Mm -hmm. And there's this intrinsic motivation that builds. But I felt like um, I could see in myself that it was hard to get underneath that sometimes. And when I could kind of tap into that, I started to design um, that sensory experience so that it could get people who found the discomfort of meditating or maybe the boredom of meditation um, too strong, I could figure out this way to get them tapped into that physical benefit of meditation um, 
by utilizing senses as kind of a gateway into their mm. own felt experience. Fascinating. Yeah. And so when I started doing that, then I was like, okay, I think, you know, because I've been a chef forever and then I kind of disappeared from social media. And then all of a sudden, if I come out with like these meditation experiences, I feel like there's not going to be a level of trust that I think can help um, people get deep into a medi- in, in meditation. And so that was um, when I decided to enroll in the Lab of Meditation, which is Hiroko's meditation teacher training. So full circle moment back to the person who planted that seed mm. and then um, did that training. And it was it was like such a beautiful program. Everyone in there, um, you know, you forge these deep, meaningful relationships with. Yeah. Um, and Hiroko's just, I'm so... Uh, lucky to to be able to call her uh, one of my closest friends now yeah that's so wonderful you know and you're talking about that for a full circle moment for you um in meeting her and planting the seed and the enso isn't it a, a circle <laughs> yes yes, <laughs> yes yes totally yeah i love that your first tattoo it's all it's all connected yeah for sure and so are you continuing these these sensory experiences like where where are you now with mindfulness and um being of service to to others mm-hmm. yeah so the um that sensory experience it revolved around food and the sense of taste um tapping into other senses as well but with the centering around taste and so that one i held december 2019 um i held one of them and it went really well kind of like i don't really want to hold metrics but i, I thought in my mind if you know 10% of the attendees start a daily practice from that. Mm. I call that, you know, a resounding success. And yeah. and a couple of people reached out to me after the event and they were like, I could never meditate like on my own before. And that experience shifted that for me. And so that kind of gave me like the, you know, um, fuel, I guess, to be like, okay, this does work. This isn't just some experiment in my mind that has no relation to, to life. And so started to develop it more. And now I'm starting to design um, multiple different kinds of events, but they all have to do with utilizing our senses as like a portal into our own experience. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's more to come, right? Like if people want to learn more, I think they could sign up for a newsletter on your site. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I started this uh, website. I think it's uh, qualia1.com. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and so there's a little newsletter sign up for anyone interested. And then uh, once these events um, start up, then uh, that'll be kind of the first people to get access. Um, well, good thing I'm signed up already. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. It's awesome to hear. And so, yeah. And then on... In terms of my personal practice, um, there's been a lot of a lot of healing that needed to, to happen, and I think mindfulness was the framework um, and the how do I say maybe like the experiential agility in my own felt experience that was required for me to be able to tap into like my the embodiment of you know um, repressed emotions, repressed stress traumas that I picked Mm. up throughout my life Mm -hmm. and um and then letting those go and uh and so I joined um just soon after the the COVID lockdown um I joined this uh, meditation crew called the NBD squad the no big deal squad um 
and it's it was created by Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who uh, who I consider to be my teacher now, and she uh, she's designed this incredible practice that just it's hard to um, I think in meditation it at least for me, I found it was quite easy to bypass certain things, especially things that were quite difficult to work through. But the framework that she provides, just it really cuts through in a way that I've never felt with any of the other um, Buddhist or meditation practices mm. that I've um, that I've practiced. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where I am now. Um, and it's been it's been quite incredible. And I and I have so much love and gratitude for for Rev and her teachings, um, which is loosely, ba- I mean, it's based on Zen. Um, she's a Zen priest, and 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 then she kind of adapted it so that it would be more relevant to people in non-monastic settings, like people mm, living in the city. Because right. a lot of um, Buddhist teachings were written in the context of a monastery, of being um, not being in in like. An urban, a dense urban area, yeah. and and so she kind of, um, without losing any of that soul and where it comes from, just adapts it in a way that makes it a feel, for me, a little more practical, a little more tangible, and a little more um, relevant to to big city life. living. Yeah, yeah contemporary yeah. living. I don't know. If so a lot a more. City. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she just makes it more. Um, applicable for people like they can apply it yeah yeah, yeah and into it's their yeah. into their lives yeah and one thing that we say is that um um liberation which is like liberation from you know your attachments the things that that for that keep you stuck in this pattern for example like the, those sh- those shackles of habit you know that liberation um isn't separate from social justice. And and so we're a BIPOC centering and queer loving space. Mm. Um, And especially now more than ever in my lifetime, um, it's been been impactful for me to be able to go through a lot of what we're seeing in society these days, um, but with a deep practice that doesn't try to bypass it or anything but really centers on it Mm -hmm. and then explores our relationship to everything and i think that's where the magic really is in a deep mindfulness practice is examining the relationships you have yeah and like the The connection of all things mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. been learning a lot about that and in uh, my sound therapy practice and the Mm -hmm. more that i'm um, diving more and more into it even from you know a science perspective and understanding energy and the ways that we're connected, you know, in quantum physics, there is no way that something can happen in one place and it not energetically affect something so far away. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's there and it's it's true and it's you know whether you look at it from a consciousness perspective or a science perspective, mm-hmm. it's, it's true. We're it's, so connected. It's so true, and it's crazy how many different like doorways there are into that exploration. Like one big thing that helped me tap into the interconnectedness of um, humans, for example, was um, exploring self-compassion on a deep level, but then also tapping into like mindfulness on deep levels and non-duality, you start to, I started to get really interested for the first time. Like I did calculus in, uh, in university, but I didn't like it at that time. And I didn't really 
get it at the time. Mm. And now that I'm practicing like non-duality and and meditation on a deeper level, it's starting to, I'm starting to understand what calculus is about. (laughs) And like just last week, actually, I was like actually researching and looking through um, calculus on like a macro sense of just like what is, what is the, what are the moving forces and what are, what's the exploration really about? And then, like you said, quantum physics, like all these things that have never piqued my interest. And then a depth of mindfulness is like tapping me into those. Mm-hmm. And so it's been such an incredible exploration of, of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a wonderful way to like look back and at all the things that you learned or experienced and, and connect them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there's, it's, it, I think I kept hearing growing up, like everything's connected. Um, you know, maybe the term oneness mm. and like, I couldn't feel into it. And once I was able to reestablish a connection to myself and I was able to recognize the nature of my mind and, and tap into that. I think that's when mm. everything started shifting. I'd love to explore something you said about um, self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think all of this, the things that we're, we're talking about right now are very timely given what hap- has happened over the last 14 months of everyone's lives and mental health and self-care. Uh, what does self-compassion look like to you? And if you were going to share um, a, a, a tactic for people to practice it or begin to practice it, um, especially now, what would you say? I think when I was, you know, especially into self-development and I started to become aware of all these societal issues, I think there was a separation between myself and the external world. And my focus was like, how can I affect the external world in a positive way? And that didn't work because you know, your bullshit will come up mm-hmm. and keep you from being able to, to do that kind of work or be able to do that um, from an authentic place. And I remember early in my um, journey, there was a lot of grudges I held. I held a really strong grudge against my parents. Um, there were actually many years um, during my cooking career that I actually uh, would not return their calls. I wouldn't see them. Um, and I didn't realize I held so much resentment towards a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of my childhood. Mm. And I remember it was, I was struggling through, like, I on my mind, I was like, yeah, like, I forgive them. I understand that if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't have done anything different because they did what they did out of love, given the circumstance and the environment that they were in and that they came from. And it was a real struggle for me because I wanted to rekindle that relationship. I wanted to let go of that resentment. But it was like a year of holding that thought of like knowing that they came from pure love, but not being able to let go of it still. And it was during a um, psilocybin guided um, therapy that I came to this realization. I started playing all these negative things I did to people started coming up in my experience um, during that journey. And 
it brought a lot of shame and guilt and regret. And I just started really tapping into those those sensations. And then, you know, things started coming up in my, in my mind where I was like, oh, I need to right these wrongs. Now that I'm in a different place, I need to go back and like reach out. And I was like, no, like that's not fair to them if they've, you know, processed it in their own way. And it's not my place for my benefit to bring up, you know, old hurts within them. And then I was like, okay, I think all that matters is how I move forward from this. How do I acknowledge that these things happen and I can't take them back? But then how can I take that reality and accept it in a way where I can move forward? And then that thought mm. all of a sudden gave me, like, I was able to forgive myself mm. and truly let go of all those things. And when I let go of all those things for myself, then I found I could let go of all the things that I held against other people. Mm. And so that was my first tapping into like really realizing and embodying, wow, it really all does start with the self. And so I don't know if that's a tactic. It's not, yeah. it's not a hack. It's definitely a practice. But I would say if, you know, whatever it is, if it's compassion for others you're trying to build, as hard as it can be for a lot of people, that really does start inside yourself. And until those things are processed, I don't know if it's possible to be fully compassionate to other beings. Mm. Um, Dr. Kristen Neff was um, one of the um, pivotal voices in terms of my learnings around self-compassion. And so um, that book is one that I recommend and mm. gift to people quite a quite a lot um mm -hmm. it's called self-compassion yeah and it she does such a wonderful job where she goes through the science behind it um, behind each dimension each chapter is like a different dimension of self-compassion so she'll go through it like through the science and then she'll go through it as like broad general like fictional examples mm -hmm. and then she'll tell her personal story which is so vul vulnerable and so honest that it just yeah, it's just something in the way she was able to relate it back onto herself really landed on me. And mm -hmm. that book has profoundly changed um, my way of relating to not only myself, but to others in, mm. in a big, big way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to animals. And to animals. Yes. <laughs> all, all, right. all living all things. Living things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And I'll, I'll put that in, in the show notes for anyone who's who's interested in in reading this book. Um, I also wanted to explore your love for tea. We were chatting about that a little bit bit earlier about tea culture, and you were telling me about um, how you discovered it. So I I'd love for you to to share that story. Mm -hmm. um, I think the first time I ever got into tea was when I was deep into self development, and then I was deep into getting like you know nutrition in my body, and I heard that green tea was one of the best um, best things you can have. Uh, for that and so I remember looking up like the best kind of green tea and then dragon wall tea came up so that was me nerding out like back in like 2012 and then through my cooking career I wasn't super into tea I was definitely more into the coffee culture at that time um, adding to that type a busyness culture kind of vibe right and then when I hit that rock bottom one of the things I needed to to fix um, or to to heal through um, was adrenal fatigue and so mm -hmm. I had these insane cortisol 
um, spikes that would keep happening. And Dr. Jason Marr, um, who's a naturopathic doctor, helped me quite a bit in that journey. And so uh, he got me to be off caffeine for a long time. Um, I think I went off caffeine for a year and a half, which was a struggle because I love coffee at the time. And then when I was coming out of that, um, Pedro over at O5, who's just one of the most gracious people I've ever met, um, I remember going in there and spending some time with them and his passion for tea was just so infectious. Um, and it was a nice segue out of my um, addiction to alcohol and cannabis um, at that time. And so tea became this like this new thing that I could kind of geek out about and tap into my senses with. And then it wasn't until Rev um, did this matcha workshop for the NBD squad and um, it was just so fascinating and her passion for matcha is incredible. Mm -hmm. And so that allowed me to um, reintroduce caffeine back into my life. And, mm. and it was so welcome, not the caffeine itself, um, but just that practice of having having a ritual. And, and I know that can sound um, like many things to many people, but just like a consistent anchor in your day that serves to maybe structure is not the right word, but it's just this like point that you can come back to. And, and if that stays consistent and constant, then you can see what's shifting around that experience. Mm -hmm. And that helped me tap into subtleties, into nuance, um, not only with just like the flavors, but even of the whole process of making matcha um, because you got to whisk it quite a bit. And so there's a bit more to it than just brewing most other teas. And so this process allowed me to really explore what I was aware of what my awareness is doing when I'm doing certain tasks. And so one thing that I struggled with most of my life was um, being lost in thought. Mm -hmm. I would always be in my, in my head frequently. And matcha, um, as well as doing the dishes, those were a few of my practices that I did every day around the same time. And it, it created that anchor for me to explore, okay, if my mind's wandering, how do I re? How do I invite it to come back mm. gently, lovingly, and just coming back, coming back to what I feel, what I smell, what I hear, and yeah, I, it's I back to the present. Totally, moment. and and that practice was so mm -hmm. incredible, and it's something mm -hmm. that I I do um, still to this day. Yeah, um, had a nice nice cup of uh i think it was the s29 from uchi kyoto japan uh so much history in tea too oh, it's blown yeah. my mind mm -hmm. you know yeah pedro has some at 05 where the cultivar uh, i believe his name's suji san i mm. hope i'm not wrong um <laughs> and i believe they're like i think like fifth fourth fifth generation it's incredible yeah just like passed down mm -hmm. and um it's quite fascinating to to hear that, like especially just like that continuation of your family's um, output into the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found a, a very nice resonance to that. Mm, yes, that pr that preservation of of tradition, it's so important. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and if anyone wants to have some beautiful uh, 
you know, tea drinking experiences. O5 tea bar in, in Kits is wonderful, as well as Cultivate on Main Street oh, between yeah. 6th and 7th. So shout out to Jude and Lynn mm -hmm. at Cultivate. They're also wonderful people. So Definitely. if you do want to see a, a meditative ritual, sit at the bar there. Yeah, yeah. Guaranteed I know you'll be mesmerized. I know O5 isn't doing anything indoors right mm -mm. now, um, but um, still worth checking out. And um, if you can catch, I mean, anyone there, um, but you can geek out about tea and learn some really interesting things. Yes. Yeah. Every, everyone who works at these tea shops, oh, they, yeah. they know. They're so passionate. they're very passionate about it. Well, I am mindful of the time, so I just have a few more questions. Yeah. Um, one is in relation to something that you said around thriving. Mm -hmm. And you said that, um, you know, thriving is in giving service back. How would how would you expand on your definition of thriving past that? What else does thriving mean to you? I think to me, I think that def like how I look at thriving has shifted so much from this um, journey I've been on with mindfulness. I think thriving now just means that you are fully you are fully with yourself at any moment. Like you you aren't necessarily like centering on yourself all the time. Like you don't want to be self-centered, but you have a connection to yourself and to all parts of yourself, even the parts that you wish were different. And I think when you're able to find that place of that deep of a self-connection, it gives you enough space and spaciousness, equanimity, calmness, peace. And all of that translates to, for me, thriving. It, it, it kind of brings ease into your life. Mm -hmm. So things aren't more difficult than they need to be. And when they are difficult, there are opportunities to learn and to see what's coming up within you that's keeping you resistant or bringing up contraction in your body or tension and finding a place where you can recognize the true nature of the mind and of our awareness and then being able to use that as an anchor and as like a home mm. to come back to whenever you whenever something difficult does arise and it's not a bypassing it's not a distraction from but more so like an integration and holding and so mm. one thing that I was really um, I found difficult was to be with discomfort especially emotional discomfort which would happen a lot for me and this practice just allows you to be with what is without trying to change it and that doesn't mean that you're complacent it just means that you're not creating this unnecessary tension around your desires for things to be different. Mm -hmm. And then without that tension, you have the space and the, the, the clarity to be able to affect yourself and the world in an intentional and purposeful manner mm -hmm. instead of being reactive and trying to react to everything. You're able to kind of find some space to be able to respond. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I really, really like that a lot about the intentionality, like the intentional living. Hmm. If you were going to say something to Juno back in 2017, 
what would you tell him with what you know now? Hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to have empathy for that 2017 Juno where I'm trying to empathize with what he was able to receive. I think, I think that at that point, I wasn't able to receive much. Um, but I think what I would tell him is that things, the experiencing of life, the experience of, you know, being a conscious human being going through life can be radically different. And that there's a lot of, a lot of things that they were holding on to that felt like a really big deal and that those things could be let go of and that you could find a new way of being. Mm. And I think deep down, I kind of knew that back then. Mm. That was one of the thoughts I had was like, I need to find a new way of being. And I think, I think, I think that that guy just needed a lot of, a lot of love and acceptance and just self-love mm. and, and that, and that connection to self. I think a lot of my suffering came from running away from my heritage, running away from um, aspects of me I did not like, um, wanting to be a certain way, wanting certain outcomes in life. And um, yeah, just finding that ability to cultivate self-love, self-belonging, so that I'm not dependent or craving or striving to get that from others and like forcing it mm. yeah my final question that i ask every guest <laughs> with what you do what is it that you want to leave behind in the world that's a question i've thought about through this whole journey um and i think it it lands back onto being of service like, did I leave the world better than when I was in it? And, mm. and finding as much opportunities to help alleviate suffering and bring ease into people's lives. And so I think every project that I embark on moving forward needs to kind of hit that and align with that. And, um, and I think Meditation and mindfulness can be daunting for many people, um, especially when you say things like, you know, that you're going to have to go process things from your past. It's so daunting, but I cannot stress enough how much like the fear, the, the biggest fear is the fear of the fear itself. It's just once you get onto it and start letting go, it's just like this weight that you've been carrying your whole life. It just dissolves and and you're able to to um to be true to yourself and to really understand what that means even like what does it mean to to tap into your true self mm. um and so that exploration i think if i'm all 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 i'm looking for for myself is that i help spur that in other people i know i can't do the work for them but if i can just peek the interest, the um, the spark that enables you to truly be with yourself, um, I think that's what I want to leave behind is like how much interest and curiosity and wonder 
can I bring back to people? Mm. I, I love that word that you just used, wonder. I think that we can definitely all use a little bit more of that yeah. if we can find it. 100%. Yeah. yeah, that inner child work. Mm-hmm. Rediscovering that wonder that we all used to have. Yeah. Thank you so much for this beautiful and deep conversation. I think it's it's very timely and um, I, I cannot wait to see the work you do in the world and continue to see it. I appreciate you, May. I appreciate you too. Thank you for what you do. And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you on the spot. Mm. We're gonna collab with a sound sound bath. I my meditation. mind was going about that. That's I amazing. would I would love that. So let's definitely chat. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. It will be. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.